The gospel is a gospel of peace. At the heart of the gospel is the truth that we are not okay with God. We are, in fact, enemies of the creator, the God of the universe. In Ephesians 2, we are said to be dead in our trespasses and sins. To be dead in that sense is to have no relationship with God. Similar to those old mafia shows where someone is ostracized from the family, the, the godfather might say, you're dead to me. The member is cast out in shame, and on the penalty of death, they should never show their face again. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are dead to God. We have no relationship with him. We are his enemies. The same text in Ephesians says that we lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, children destined for the wrath of God. For we did not pursue his will as our heavenly father. We did not pursue his good pleasure, but we pursued our own. We deserved his wrath, but God, the text says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, God made peace with us. He made peace with us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins by making us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who are far off were brought near by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ on the cross. He paid the penalty of our sins, thus making peace between us and God. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. By faith in his son, we are made participants of this gracious gift. The gospel is a gospel of peace. Again, God makes peace with us through the death of his son, and all of those who have been given his peace in Christ are given peace with one another. He knits us all together. He is building us into a dwelling of his spirit. He is creating a new man with the church, those who are called out, those who have peace with God in Christ. He himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our peace. The world cannot know the peace of God, nor the God of peace except through the gospel of peace. We are again continuing our series in Philippians. Last week we began to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, considering the issue of peace. We learned that, the peace, that peace ought to characterize us as citizens of heaven. Again, God created us in Christ Jesus for peace. We, as a church, are being made into a dwelling place of God as his spirit abides in us, and the fruit of the spirit is peace. The head of the church, our savior, King Jesus, is the prince of peace. Moreover, we are brothers and sisters as members of Christ's church, brothers and sisters who are together commanded by our savior, King, the Lord Jesus, to make disciples of all nations. How can we pursue that goal if we are at odds with each other? How can we call each other brother and sister if we are at odds? Certainly there are times when members of a family have little skirmishes, but overall we ought to be characterized as people of peace within the body of Christ. We learned that for these reasons, God has provided us with resources for peace. We have joy, the ability to rejoice in the Lord always. We can rejoice in the Lord always because he never changes. Yes, there are some times when this will be a struggle, but the reality is that we can do it because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that includes our rejoicing in him. And we ought to be helping one another in that fight for joy. 
Also, we have his abiding presence. Again, through the Spirit of God, as Christ stated when he left us, the mission to make disciples, he says, I am with you always. Emmanuel is ever present with his church to cheer and to guide. Therefore, even if we lose out on this life, as we seek to be, we seek to let our reasonableness be known to all, we don't have to worry because we have everything. We have the Lord with us. Third, we consider the resource of prayer. God has provided the privilege of prayer. We have access to the throne room of God. The writer of Hebrews said that because we have this great high priest, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the Son of God, that we may draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have access to the throne room of the true and living God to ask for help when we need it. We're not being proud and arrogant when we say we have access to God, directly to God. We don't need to go through anyone else because that's what God has done for us in Christ. We have one mediator. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We go through him directly to the throne room of God in heaven. When, not if, we are anxious about anything, we are commanded for our good to pray. And the promise of prayer in this way with thanksgiving is that God will provide his peace. A peace which surpasses all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In Christ, as citizens of the kingdom, we have innumerable resources for our peace. Paul's aim for this dear church was to encourage them as they struggle with peace. The two women that he mentioned earlier in chapter 4 had a conflict that threatened peace within the body. And the whole church certainly struggled with peace due to external circumstances, the persecution and poverty that they faced. Throughout Paul's letter, the Holy Spirit aims to do the same for us, to encourage us that we can have peace as members of Christ's church if we would avail ourselves of the resources that he's provided. As we continue in our text, we're provided with two additional resources I'll read this whole section again, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 4, and then we'll pick up at verse 8 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Again, Father, we come before you, and now we ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Paul says in verse 8, think about these things. The finally here means he's wrapping up this section. Finally, as we wrap up these thoughts on peace, here are a couple of additional things to consider. The command in this verse is to think about these things. To think is to ponder, to give proper weight and value to something, to allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way life is lived. Paul is encouraging them to think in a particular way, to ponder these kinds of things, to give proper value to these kinds of things, to think on these particular things that have a particular kind of value as opposed to other things that are not so valuable. Again, the issue is a lack of peace. And the result of the lack of peace in the body of Christ is that our mission is in danger of failing. We cannot walk together to pursue the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations if we're not at peace. We need to be thinking the same thing. We need to be, as Paul said in Philippians 1.27, standing firm in one spirit of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Therefore, the things that we think on, consider, reckon, the things that we ponder and the value of those things become significant. One author commented on the issue of thinking and our brains. He says this, The capacity of the human brain is a subject of ever-widening scientific wonder. Its 12 to 14 billion cells are only a shadow of its complexity. Because each cell sends out thousands of connecting tendrils so that a single cell may be connected with 10,000 neighboring cells, each of which is constantly exchanging data impulses. These 12 to 14 billion brain cells times 10,000 connectors make the human mind an unparalleled computer. The mind's activity has been compared to 1,000 switchboards, each big enough to serve New York City all running at full speed as they receive and send questions and orders. Put another way, there's more electronic equivalent in one human brain than in all the radio and television stations of the entire world put together. Ten thousand connectors that each of our 12 to 14 billion brain cells make is in part formed in the womb, and it's also in part formed over time as we experience life and interact with the world. Even in our later years, we can make new connections, learn new things, begin to think in different ways. We previously defined anxiety as being apprehensive or unduly concerned about something. We have this overwhelming sense of concern for one thing. It occupies our minds, our hearts, and chokes the life out of anything else in our thought processes. It gets to the root of the English word worry, which means to strangle. Over time, we develop deep connections in our brains that determine how we're going to deal with these things that we're apprehensive or unduly concerned about. Perhaps we learned it from our parents and how they dealt with distress and conflict. Perhaps we learned it from experience as we responded to difficult things that came to us. Nevertheless, we have to acknowledge that the way we respond to things in life, the way we think about things in life, may not be all that healthy. Some people explode. Their emotions run rampant. They've never learned to exercise control over their emotions. So when things get difficult, 
when they become anxious, when they become angry, their emotions take control of them. And they respond, they react that way. They're prone to wild mood swings, outbursts of angers, and can sometimes be thrown into the depths of depression. It's often hard to get close to someone like this, either because you don't know how they will respond from one moment to the next, or else because they're so incredibly guarded. They're guarded because they don't want to be disappointed by others, don't want to expose themselves to relationships that will trigger emotions. Others respond by simply brooding over various issues. I am personally guilty of this one. I tend to chew on things a little too long and have a hard time letting things go when they trouble me. You know, sometimes we think about these things, we meditate on them, we look at them from multiple sides. Often when that help happens, we run the gambit of the what-ifs in our minds. Well, what if this happens as a result? Or what if that happens? Or we're borrowing ideas from things that haven't actually happened yet. And we tend to grow in our worry and frustration. Maybe we think about how much someone else has angered us or someone else has hurt us. We think about how much we don't deserve it, how much the world has wronged us, how evil and wicked other people are around us. We may even direct our frustration to God. Maybe you're not a brooder, maybe you're an ignorer. We use the phrase to kick the can down the road to describe how politicians handle difficult situations, right? You pretend like it's not there. You don't discuss it. You ignore it. And all you're really doing is leaving it to be a problem later. Many relationship disputes are handled this way. I was involved in a counseling situation years ago where there were numerous problems within the family on both the husband and wife side on many levels, but neither of them reached out for help. The husband was struggling with with one thing. The wife knew he was struggling with one thing. She didn't say anything to anyone about it and just kind of let it persisted. And everything just kind of blew up in the end. There wasn't really much that could be done because they treated it as family business, right? You have those things that are family business and you don't really want to talk about it to anyone else. You don't want to let anybody else know about it. And in the end, it it blows up and creates all kinds of turmoil because we're trying to be private. Perhaps instead of completely ignoring it, you do what you can to distract yourself from it. You drown your anxiety by dulling your senses with drugs, alcohol, indulging in immorality in order to feel some kind of pleasure to avoid thinking about the pain. Where you entertain yourself to death through social media, gaming, movies, your favorite TV shows, books, virtual reality, anything to engage in a fantasy life that's not your life so you don't have to deal with it. People respond in various ways to trouble, to conflict, and this is learned over time. The reality is that the way we respond to conflict, the way we think about conflict is often not healthy. And it is often the case that the way we choose to respond tends to lead to more conflict and more trouble. Paul is saying in our passage, whatever it is that you usually do, I want you to do something different. Instead of thinking on conflict and issues that cause anxiety in the way you normally would, instead, think on these kinds of things. Again, to think on these things or dwell on these things is to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, to allow the result in appraisal to influence the way life is lived. In other words, don't just react to life around you, to conflict, to difficulty, to issues that bring you anxiety. You need to be thinking through these things. 
More than that, the tense of the word suggests that we are to make a habit of continually thinking on these kinds of things. We should be characterized as thinking on these kinds of things. Those science buffs out there, having these things on your mind frequently, building connections between various cells in your brains of frequent consideration of these kinds of things will help you. That takes time. That takes effort. We already have the mind of Christ. We've been told that earlier in Philippians. The mind of Christ is ours as citizens of heaven. We have the responsibility to work out our salvation by taking care with the way we think. Now, how do you stop thinking one way in the midst of conflict, in the midst of those issues that cause anxiety when you're accustomed to thinking and responding in that way? How do you change those relationships, those pathways that have been formed in your brain over the years? Now, in case it isn't clear, I'm not a biologist. Not a psychologist. I am a pastor, and I'm speaking as a pastor. As a pastor, if you want to change the way you think in times of conflict, it starts with how you think when there is no conflict. What are the things that you normally, daily, moment by moment, fill your mind with? What do you think on in the normal course of your life? Our lives are bombarded with information. Of course, television, radio, the internet, but also movies, books, discussions with friends, family, co-workers, classmates at school. We are bombarded with information to think on, things to assimilate into our brains, and none of it is benign. The information that we get from these various sources, no matter how much they claim to be impartial, will always have a motive. They will always have an agenda, a point, a purpose, a goal in disseminating the kind of information they give. What are the kinds of things that you allow your mind to ponder daily? Ultimately, this will determine how you respond in times of conflict. What goes in must come out. Proverbs 23.7, For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Matthew 6.23, Jesus there says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In the whole context there, he's talking about anxiety. He's preaching about us not being anxious. He's preaching about us not treasuring things that are going to fall away, but treasuring the right kinds of things. And so how do you go from treasuring the right kinds of things to not being anxious? Well, he says, the way you go from treasuring the right kinds of things is to focus on the right kinds of things. The eye is the lamp of the body. What your eye is set upon, what your eye is focused on, is going to determine how you respond internally. It's going to determine what comes out in the end. It's going to determine if you're filled with light or darkness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, as he was looking at that passage in Matthew 6, he says, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty in life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head, and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. The way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. He says, we do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not the Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. 
The trouble with most people, however, is that they will not think. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what is going to happen to me? What can I do? That is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord here is urging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. Again, the trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought, a failure to think, end quote. I think that's a good summary. So again, the question becomes, what are the things that you normally daily, moment by moment, fill your minds with? And are those things the kind of things that will fortify your mind so that in the midst of conflict, you can think rightly about it? Again, back in our text, the word of God says that we are to think on these kinds of things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise... Whatever is true, meaning things that are objectively true, not just true because you wish it to be true, but things that are objectively true, solidly solidly in the realm of reality. The opposite of those things would be false, things that are not objectively true in reality. Where we often get ourselves into trouble again and fall into despair is when we're caught up into thinking on things that are not true. We speculate. Remember, we think about the what-ifs in times of crisis. What if this happens? What if that happens? What's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. And those things bring us greater sorrow. We're borrowing ideas and concepts of things that haven't happened yet and we don't know will happen, and we treat them in our minds as if they're true. The Holy Spirit says, no, think on what is true. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, he says next. Something that is honorable is worthy of respect. It is dignified. The opposite would be something ignoble or vulgar. Perhaps a caution here is for us with respect to our entertainment choices. How do we spend our time entertaining ourselves? What kind of movies do you watch? What kind of music do you listen to? What are your, who are your favorite comedians? When you surf the web, what kind of sites do you frequent? Are those things honorable, dignified, or are they vulgar and base? Again, what goes in will come out. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. When you hear just, think righteous. This is righteous in every sense of the word, things pertaining to righteousness, to God's righteous standard. Of course, the opposite would be wickedness. It would be sin. It would be opposite of what God has determined to be righteous. Yes, this world has made an art form of calling good evil and evil good. The caution here would be to make sure that we don't fall prey to that way of thinking. We're in the midst of the so-called Pride Month. Gay Pride is celebrated. A church down the road posted on Facebook their gratitude for celebrating Pride Month. You hear love wins. Choose love, not hate, is a repeated refrain. The goal is to shame anyone who believes otherwise. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want for love to win? Who wouldn't want to celebrate love, to choose love, not hate? Certainly we do as Christians, but we don't define love in the same way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is laying down your life for another. It is not getting what you want to satisfy your desires. It's laying down your life for another for the glory of God. That is how love is defined. That is what Jesus did. 
Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Back to the things we are to think on. Next he says, whatever is pure. This word does appropriately follow the previous as it suggests that which is morally pure. In other words, keep your minds out of the gutter. The things that you're consistently thinking on should be pure things, holy things, godly things. Again, we should not have our minds dwelling on base things, morally impure things, wicked acts. Suffice it to say that contemporary media, and this is a quote from an author as he's thinking about this passage, suffice it to say that contemporary media overwhelmingly presents the antithesis of Philippians 4.8 as they have become increasingly eroticized, violent, and intolerant of Jesus Christ. And given that there is virtually no distinction between the viewing habits of Christians and non-Christians, the minds of countless Christians have become increasingly eroticized and blasphemous, which is to say, sub-Christian. Today, more than ever, Before, we need to heed the psalmist's advice. I will walk within the integrity of my house. I will set before my eyes nothing that is worthless, Psalm 101. Perhaps there is a need to be violent. There is a need for the violent refusal voiced by Jesus from Matthew 5.29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that the whole body be thrown into hell. Among other things, these days, pornography has led to the ruin of both male and female, even among Christians. And there are countless studies that prove how pornography alters the way people view the opposite sex and sexuality in general. It shapes those connections in your brain that operate our perspectives on sex. That's why it's so dangerous. This is why if you're struggling with pornography, your response should be, as Jesus said, Cut it off, throw it away, immediately run, flee. Don't try to stand and fight, get away from it. During the T4G conference that I attended recently, there was a booth there for the company called Covenant Eyes. They had a myriad of resources available for individuals, families, and churches. This is just something that churches don't talk about, and I don't understand why. Because it is a real issue. And it's something that we need to deal with as the church. But they have resources for individuals, families, and churches. Now, I've yet to explore all of it, but I would commend it as a resource for those who need, again, whether you need it for yourself as an individual or for your family engaging on that issue. If you have young people in the home, again, it's called covenant eyes. Moving on. Again, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. That which is lovely commends itself to love. Again, not the world's view of love, but God's view of love. Certainly the opposite of that would be hate. But if we get down to it, it is hate that is not merely expressed in a visceral rejection of another person or one thing, but it could also be expressed in the lack of action. If we know love by Christ dying for our sins on the cross, then we ought to love one another in the same way. Love is defined not merely as an emotion or feeling, but rather as an action, a sacrificial action for the good of another, not for ours alone, right? Therefore, the lack of love or hatred could also be defined as a lack of sacrificial love of act or action, a passivity, standing idly by while one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is in need. Seeing their need, hearing their need, and failing to act. Disregarding them in favor of your own comfort. Failing to reach out. Failing to serve. 
Again, we see those who are not here. We see those who are not here because they're sick. We see those who are not here because they're just not showing up. How do we respond to that? How do you respond to that? How you respond to that is either love or it's not. John says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love with word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, he says, whatever is lovely, next, whatever is commendable, something that is commendable is spoken well of, that is inspiring. The opposite would be something that causes an adverse reaction, like a foul joke or discouraging news. Certainly there are some times when you have to hear discouraging things, but the point of the text is that we are to be thinking on things Spending time thinking on things that are commendable, not discouraging. And just in case he's missed anything else that would be appropriate for them to consider, he gives some concluding summary objectives. If there's any excellence, if there's any wor- anything worthy of praise, anything, anything that is excellent, it is good, it is morally upright. Moreover, it is worthy of praise. Anything done in excellence or anything that is done which is praiseworthy. Paul says, think on these kinds of things. Think on these kinds of things. Remember, ponder, give proper weight and value to, allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way your life is lived. These kinds of things should influence the way your life is lived. Now that is a tall order. The question is, what can you fix your attention on? What can you ponder that would fit the description that he gives? I think that we can all agree that there is no one thing more true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy than the word of God. If you know nothing else, then you know that the word of God is the thing that we ought to be pondering and allowing to influence our lives above all other things. I've said frequently before, but a large part of our lives as believers has to do with the way we think about life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, by the mercies of God, thinking over the mercies of God. Guys, all of what I said between Romans chapter 1 and Romans 11, the mercies of God, as he's laid out the plan of salvation, what salvation looks like, how God has worked in our salvation. Think about the mercies of God. Think on his truth. Think on his word. Let that transform your mind. Let it renew your mind. And then you'll prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Consider again Psalm 19 that our brother Kevin read earlier today. At the end of Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. David uses 
general revelation, he uses creation to illustrate the effectiveness, the beauty, the all-encompassing value of the, of the word of God. He refers to the sun in the first half of that song. He talks about the glory of God's creation and how God's creation is speaking of his glory. And then he talks about how the sun moves from one end of the heavens to the other and that there's nothing hidden from its heat. And that speaks volumes about the glory of God. And then he moves into the word of God. And the point of that psalm is, just as the sun is important for life, for physical life, and there's no creature who doesn't benefit from the value of the sun, so also the word of God is important, is necessary for spiritual life. And there's no aspect of your life that isn't impacted by the word of God. Hebrews 4.16, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Maybe he was thinking of Psalm 1. That refers to the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And he goes on from there. I think the point should be clear. Thinking on the goodness and truthfulness of the word of God ought to be a regular habit of your mind, precisely because what you take into your mind is what will influence the way you think and act. You ought to have a regular daily diet of those truthful, good, right, honorable, excellent, praiseworthy things. This is why the word of God is so central to the life of the church. It's why we gather Sunday after Sunday around the word of God. It's why we have scripture reading from the word of God. It's why we have hymns and spiritual songs based on the word of God. It's why we sit for 45 or so minutes listening to a sermon based on the word of God. Because what you take into your minds will come out. I preached a sermon on series on developing a biblical worldview precisely because the word of God is the lens through which the people of God should view the world. The world views the word of God through its own lens. The world views life through its own lens. The repeated refrain in the book of Judges certainly applies to the world today. In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But not so for the people of God. The people of God get their marching orders from the word of God. For us, the word of God defines manhood and womanhood, gender and sexuality. God said in the beginning, Genesis 1, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Let, it, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. The word of God defines life when it begins and when it should end. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. The word of God defines family. Ephesians 5, you can read that for yourself, the whole section. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is all about living for the Lord. The word of God defines the mission of the church. We've already mentioned Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations, God says. God defines love. We've said that already. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Ultimately, the word of God tells us that this life, even our participation in the church, our involvement in the lives of others, is not about us, but it's about God. Ephesians 3.21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. The word of God is of central importance to the life of the church. You need to be in the word of God daily, building yourself up on the faith. Sunday morning sermon is not enough. One of my high school um, football teachers used to say, you play how you practice. Right? How you practice is going to be how you play during the game. Likewise for us, how we practice, how we go about our daily lives is going to be how we play. When we're in the midst of difficult circumstances, the solution is consistent, regular thinking on these kinds of things, thinking on God's promises. You should have a plan for scripture memory. In the Psalms, he says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. There are apps for that kinds of thing. There's always the old faithful note cards that we used to use growing up, right? Ask someone to memorize with you if you need help. Whatever you need to do to get God's word in your heart, do it. You should have a plan for regular Bible reading. Again, Psalm 1, meditating on it day and night is thinking on it over and over again, chewing on it. And that should be true of all of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Take your mind off of the world. Put it on the word of God. When you come before the word, remember... And pray as David prayed in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your word. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. As we keep our minds on the word of God, he will keep us in his peace. Well, that was resource number four. Our last resource, number five, are examples from God's people. Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have discussed this throughout the letter. 
But Paul often puts himself forth as an example. He puts forth his life as an example of how to pursue Christ. Here he says effectively that the God of peace is with me and thus will be with you if you do likewise. Earlier it said, keep your eye on those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. If you're struggling with peace, again, since we live in community, talk with someone about it. Share with them, open up to them, ask them how they conduct themselves, how they pursue Christ, how they maintain unity in the midst of conflict, what it means to be reasonable with those who may be unreasonable themselves. Ask them how they fight for joy when they're discouraged. Ask them how to pray when anxiety strikes. Ask them about their Bible study habits. Find books on believers who have lived faithfully before God and read about them. This is the line of people in Hebrews chapter 11, the whole of faith. These are books like Fox's Book of Martyrs, From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya, other books on missionaries and God's servants who have served throughout the years, who were not perfect people, but who sacrificed, who gave their lives in service to Christ, who lived their lives just like we do, who had families and who dealt with supporting their families and loving their families, who struggled with all of those things. And as you engage with one another, as you read stories about those who've gone on before us, the only right response is to seek to imitate the faith of the faithful. This is being an effective doer of the word and not a hearer only, as James said. Well, practice these things and the promises that the God of peace will be with you. Again, he is the God of peace. Paul refers to him frequently in this way. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 2 Corinthians 13.11, and the God of peace will be with you. God is the God of peace. Remember, when you think peace, think wholeness. God has peace within himself. He's never broken or fractured. He's never anxious, never worried. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He's never shaken, never taken off guard. God is always at peace. And we're reminded here that it is not only his peace being offered, but also his presence as the God of peace. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the God of peace will be with you and will give you peace as you give yourself to his word and seek to live by it? One last quote. This matter of our minds, this immensely complex mystery that resides between our temples is a matter of life and death. On the one hand, there must be a conscious rejection of all that is not constant, consonant with the mind of Christ. On the other, there must also be a conscious taking on of exalted thoughts, and not only the thinking of them, but the practice of them day after day, so that the mind of Christ shines out through a dark world. End quote. We live in a world that knows nothing of peace, There are wars and rumors of wars. There are dissensions, disagreements, arguments, divisions. There's the desire for peace, the call for unity, but there's no unified understanding of how to achieve it. God knows. The very God whose truth is suppressed by this world in unrighteousness, he knows, and he's provided peace to his church. Within the church is the peace of God. To the church, the command has been given to be diligent to preserve that peace. To the church, divine resources have been given. The Holy Spirit to produce joy, the presence of God abiding among his people, prayer, his promises, the faithful example of his people. Beloved, do you avail yourself of his peace? Are you at peace in him? I would urge you to believe the word of God today. Trust him for his peace. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Father, thank you for being the God of peace. 
Thank you for the reminder that you are with us in Christ, that you will be with us as we continue to pursue you as the God of peace. As we pursue your word, as we seek to live in accordance with your word, you are the God of peace and you've promised to be with us. Help us to remember that and help us to encourage one another in that truth as we continue to seek to live for your glory and for the glory of your son, the Lord Jesus, who is the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. We pray this all in his blessed name. Amen.